You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Come closer. I want to talk to you. I'm going to tell you an astounding story. The story of the Maltese falcon. 600 years the falcon has carried the mystery of a fabulous wealth under its grotesque wings. I could tell you a thousand tales of the men and women who have hunted this evil bird. But every story has the same ending. Murder. Listen to these incredible people, all consumed by their passionate greed for the Maltese falcon. What have you ever given me beside money? Have you ever given me any of your confidence, any of the truth? Haven't you tried to buy my loyalty with money and nothing else? What else is there I can buy you with? Time for that schoolgirl act. We're both of us sitting under the gallows. Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Professor Rich Edwards. Thanks, Mike. It's going to be great to be here, and we're going to talk a lot about the stuff that dreams are made of tonight. Also with us this week is Mr. Eric Cohen. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. But whatever happens, I will not play the sap for you. This week, we are looking at the 1941 film, The Maltese Falcon, written and directed by John Huston in his directorial debut. The film stars Humphrey Bogart as gumshoe Sam Spade, who unravels the mystery of the titular black bird. We'll also be talking about the two previous productions of the same Dashiell Hammett story. So if you've not seen this or any other version of The Maltese Falcon or The Black Bird or Hammett or other things, I suggest turning off this podcast and coming back 
after you have. We will still be here. Eric, when was the first time you saw the Maltese Falcon, and what did you think, sir? The first time I saw it, I was pretty young. I don't think I think I was just barely a teenager. Uh, I remember seeing it on TV. I've heard about it. It was you know very much in the public conscious because it's this iconic thing. I don't remember it registering on me very much at the time. And then years later, I uh, was a big fan of the movie Blade Runner. I was aware it was sort of a homage to classic noir. And so I started to seek out noir films as a result of that. And thus, I was reintroduced to uh, the Maltese Falcon. Uh, And I liked it then. I didn't really learn to love it until I became a Dashiell Hammett fan. Uh, and so it was through, so I, I had these like a third reintro, a three intro, a third introduction to Maltese Falcon after becoming a Dashiell Hammett fan. How about you, Rich? I saw it for the first time when I was in college. So I saw it about when I was about 18 years old for the first time. And it really came across in that initial viewing as a wonderful yarn. And I really enjoyed it. You know, when I was 18, I really didn't know what film noir was, or if I did, I didn't really have a sophisticated handle on it. And the part that I remember from the first time I ever saw it is Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre. It was one of those films where as magnificent as Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor are, it's these supporting roles that just stick in your brain. And Casper Gutman and the Peter Lorre character of Joel Cairo are just some of the two best supporting actors that you can imagine in a film. And then as I got to be much more aware of what film noir is as a phenomenon, I kept returning to this film. It's probably a film I've seen about 30 times. And it's a film that always pays me back no matter how many times I see it because there really was – this is one of those films – released in the early 1940s that I don't think gets a lot of credit for its inventiveness, but directed by a 25-year-old John Huston, this is a film that is a very energetic, amazing adaptation of a fantastic source novel. Now, we've done 350-some episodes of The Projection Booth, and I've told this story probably three times before. So if you've listened to those particular episodes of The Projection Booth, I really do apologize, but I have to dust this one off. The first time I saw the Maltese Falcon, and it was really, I think it might have been the first Peter Lorre film that I saw. And it probably wasn't the first Humphrey Bogart film that I saw, but this was where I really gained an appreciation for both of those actors and especially Peter Lorre. Now, at this time, I was also, like you, Rich, I was about 18, maybe 19 years old, saw this in college, went to a double feature, one of these student union run type productions where it was three bucks for two movies. Fantastic. And was a huge Ren and Stimpy fan. And I knew where Ren kind of got his voice, but my God, I was rolling every time Joel Cairo would speak. And then at the end, when he blows up on... (laughs) on Gutman and starts calling him a bloated idiot, I just lost my shit. It was just so funny to me with with Ren in mind. It's you who bungled it. You and your stupid attempt to bite. You imbecile, you bloated idiot. You stupid fat head, you... <laughs> you stupid idiot. You filthy worm. You bloated sack. 
and it was just it was a wonderful wonderful experience i was so glad to be able to see that and it really kicked me into high gear with film noir and detective movies overall this episode comes from us walking down the street at NoirCon, November of 2016, and you're like, I'd like to do a comparison of the three versions of the Maltese Falcon. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a great podcast. And here we are a year and a half later. <laughs> so it happens, folks. If you put in your request, it might happen to you too, but it might take me a little while. When we're at NoirCon, we're surrounded by all these conversations about film noir, you know, a lot of people who might be listening to the projection booth might not be familiar that by the time the iconic version of the Maltese Falcon is filmed in 1941, this was the third remake of Dashiell Hammett's book. And what I find so interesting is we always talk about nowadays with like remake culture or how it constantly feels like we're rebooting a franchise. I keep thinking that Warner Brothers kept rebooting the Maltese Falcon until they got it right. And we're going to talk about it later in the episode. But it's really hard to imagine after they did the 1941 version with Humphrey Bogart and Mary Astor in the lead roles, then they just stopped remaking this film. But all the two previous versions, the ones made in 31 and 36, both are flawed um, in very profound ways. But that's one of the reasons why I think this film has such tremendous staying power, and it's easy to appreciate the greatness of this film if you take the time to seek out the two previous versions. I'm just amazed that my colleagues and I on the cinephiles discussed the Maltese Falcon before you did. And this is only the second, maybe, Humphrey Bogart movie I've talked about, though I can't tell you how many times Treasure of the Sierra Madre has come up on the show before. And I'm very surprised that we've never actually dedicated an episode to Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I, I know I've talked about John Huston, the actor, tons of times on the show. We've talked about Myra Breckenridge. We've talked about um, The Visitor, <laughs> all these amazing roles that John Huston was in. But I never really, uh, as far as I remember, talked about a John Huston directed film. And to uh, Rich's point earlier, this was his first directing effort. I mean, how how many years are we away from, from Kane at this point? Because this is some of the exact same stuff that young Orson Welles with his first movie is doing with, with uh, Houston doing with his movie. And my God, does this movie look fantastic? Yeah, it's funny. I, I rewatched it this weekend. I didn't think I needed to. and I'm glad I did. I, I feel like the last time I saw it, again, I, I alluded to the Cinephiles episode where we discussed classic noir. And this is the first time we discussed in that episode. It was so fresh in my mind. I didn't think I needed to see it again. But I was like, screw it. I'll watch it again. And I noticed things uh, this time around that I, I didn't notice before. Like that entire sequence from when Sam Spade is drugged by Gutman and he passes out on the floor. To when Gutman, uh, Cairo, and Wilmer leave the uh, hotel room, that's all done in one take. And I never noticed that before. To go to Mike's point about, you know, what's the relationship of the Maltese Falcon to Citizen Kane? They're both 1941 films. They're made at two very different studios. The Maltese Falcon is made at Warner Brothers. And in many ways, the Maltese Falcon is going to be set up in the casting to be pretty much in the mainstream of a Warner Brothers gangster film. And so the initial person that they were going to cast um, in the iconic role of Sam Spade was George Raft. 
And so you try to imagine this version of the Maltese Falcon with George Raft, and it's really kind of hard. And then you think about Citizen Kane is made at RKO by the person who gets the title, the Boy Wonder, um, which is Orson Welles. And he's coming off of the great uh, successes in New York with the Mercury Theater and with his radio work. And he brings a very uh, fluid um, camera style and great understanding of film sound to RKO, working with the exquisite Greg Tolan. And that gets tens in film history to get all the credit. But then when you think about the Maltese Falcon, John Huston is literally the same age as Orson Welles. And I think he does a staggering amount of new techniques, especially around the long take, where we always talk about the long takes in Citizen Kane, but we don't really talk about them in the Maltese Falcon, and including that great final scene in the movie that is very close to a single continuous take, or at least even if there's edits, it was really rehearsed as a long take. And so I really think it's important to restore the Maltese Falcon to its proper place in cinema history, that independent of how people sometimes talk about it as the first film noir, I think it's part of the early golden era of the studio system where filmmakers such as John Ford, Orson Welles, and John Huston really finally started to master the language of sound film. And I'd put Maltese Falcon right up there as one of the everlasting masterworks of the early 1940s. This movie takes no prisoners. I mean, it starts off so quick and you're introduced to people to characters so fast and there's just this real brevity of the introductions and getting our our attention immediately i mean even just that opening shot of like san francisco which comes after a real quick scroll at the beginning talking about the history of the falcon itself but then bam we're in san francisco and then we're in miles uh archer and spade's office and we're being introduced to sam spade we're being introduced to effie uh the secretary we're being introduced to miss wonderly bang 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 all of a sudden just taking us into this world and we don't really even have time to catch our breath before we're introduced to, you know, even Miles Archer coming in and then him having to go out and find this Thursby character. I think there's a murder within the first you know, few minutes of this movie. And just then it's kind of what happened there. And we're really taken on this journey of Sam Spade trying to find out who murdered his partner and make things right, which we almost forget about when he gives his speech towards the end of the film about, you know, when a man loses his partner, when a man's partner is killed, he has to do something. And by that time, it's almost, you've almost forgotten that his partner has been killed and it was less than an hour and a half ago, but they just take you on this, you know, I hate to use the word thrill ride, but they grab you and they just don't let you go. They take you through on this journey. And that moment of Miles Archer being shot is one of the very few times that we're not with Sam Spade, which I think is a really smart thing to do to keep us with Spade throughout almost this entire movie. I mean, you can count on one hand how many times we're not with Spade. So we know 
I can't even say we know as much as Sam Spade does because he's smarter than we, the audience, are, which is another great thing that we have to keep up with our main character. We're not smarter than the main character is for once. You know, there are very few times these days where we don't know as much uh, about the story as our character or can't guess more than our main character can. However, Sam Spade may be too smart for his own good because he's a guy that it's it's implied, especially in, in Hammett's writings. He he was in the he, people think you know Sam Spade was you know uh, Dashiell Hammett's signature detective. He really wasn't. He was in one novel and maybe a few short stories. I mean, his signature is his like uh, essential detective that he had had a, a cult around was the Continental Op. The main character of Red Harvest, which is said to have inspired Joe Jimbo and Fistful of Dollars and all that. But the Sam Spade in the stories and it's and it's implied in the movie, he's not a good character. He's kind of a dick. And he's and in and in Houston's version, he's he's particularly sadistic. Like the way he manhandles Joe Cairo, you see the smile on his face, like, I'm really gonna enjoy this. I'm really gonna enjoy punching this guy, you know? And I remember one of the things when the film uh, pieces of, of literature on film that I've read that just sticks in my mind was a, was a passage in one of Danny Peary's books. I think it was one of his cult movie books where he talks about how at the very end of the film, when we see Bridget O'Shaughnessy go down in the elevator, yeah, she's going to hell in an elevator, but Sam Spade is taking the stairs. It's taking him longer, but he's going to get there eventually. And and that's how like I see Sam Spade. He He's very much an anti-hero. It's not really clear well, it is clear he doesn't so much care for his partner, Miles Archer. I mean, he's sleeping with his wife, right? And he has a lot of contempt for his wife. It seems like he's just doing this thing because, you know, this is what I'm supposed to do. He was my partner. I had to find justice for my partner. It's not like uh, his, uh, like ha- Dashiell Hammett's other character, Continental Op, where he has like an ethical code. He has this like thing where he does things because he thinks it's the right thing to do because he feels it's the morally the right thing to do. Sam Spade doesn't seem to be doing it for moral reasons. He just does it because he thinks it's kind of like that bully in high school. That's like you know he's bullying this little kid, and the bullies from the school next door bully the kid too, and he protects the kid. And he says, "No, you can't bully that kid. Only I can bully that kid." You know. And that's Sam Spade. Part of what propels the narrative is it's not necessarily a standard detective thriller. Part of what's really fun that I think the two previous versions don't quite capture as well as Houston is it's meant to be also showing how Sam is able to adapt and be one beat ahead of the other characters in the film, except possibly uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy. I love the way Bogart can play a character who is smarter than the other individuals on the scene. And for me, it's oftentimes the way, you know, it's like these minor scenes that are done as very important scenes. Like Houston had a way of investing even in very minor scenes is like when Humphrey Bogart is Sam Spade's talking to the detectives. You just get this intelligence in Bogart where you're always rooting for him because his sarcasm, his hard attitude, his ability to think on his feet, he is the lead character and he's the one we most identify with because we see in Bogart that performance, that performing of the thinking, of the detection. And sometimes he's just completely making it up 
and bluffing. I think that's part of what makes it so fun, but why this becomes, I think, the persona that Bogart will keep for the next 14 years in Hollywood. It was inspired casting because at that point of his career, Bogart did High Sierra. That was his first real leading part. But even then, he was associated with like heels and gangsters and, you know, criminal lowlife type roles. You know, Houston, you know, they couldn't get Raft. You know, Raft famously or infamously turned down some iconic noir parts. Like he was supposed to be Bay offered in the Pregnant Murray part in Double Indemnity, right? He turned that down. But thank God Houston was like, I'm going to use Bogart. Because who would have thunk? Because now we, we think of Bogart, this iconic guy we associated with Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe. But back then, you know, they really took a chance on Bogart. So much of this movie is about acting and the way that... Sam Spade will critique Bridget O'Shaughnessy's performance, whether he's buying what she's selling or not. We didn't exactly believe your story, Miss O'Shaughnessy. We believed you $200. And when he is questioning her more uh, in front of the fireplace and watching her reaction. Uh, uh, you're not going to go around the room straightening things and poking the fire again, are you? Because he's got her on edge and just knows that by using words, he's going to be able to get a reaction out of her or see how she is pretending to react, which is another great thing. But yeah, him just constantly like, oh, you are good. You won't need much of anybody's help. You're good. It's chiefly your eyes, I think, and that throb you get in your voice when you say things like, be generous, Mr. Spade. There's him setting up a stage and then becoming a member of the audience when he introduces two characters together that we haven't seen in one place before by introducing Joel Cairo back to Miss O'Shaughnessy and him going around the apartment and turning on lights and then sitting in a chair. And we're almost looking over his shoulder like we're behind him in a theater. And then occasionally we do get full-on shots of him as he's watching the action and watching his reactions to this. I absolutely love that. And then we get him turning off the lights later on uh, after that, the the long night of them all being together is there. I love this whole stage dressing thing. And then him also, sorry, I'm kind of rambling, but him also playing a role when he suddenly becomes super angry at Casper Gutman and just raises his voice and makes all these threats. And then he leaves the room and then you see him smile because he knows that he's just put on a fantastic performance. Yeah. I, I the thing that sticks, I don't know why this one moment sticks in my mind so much. I think it's just, it's a testament to Bogart's acting and how subtle he can be uh, is when Miles Archer first walks into the office and and you could tell the Miles Archer is like, oh, what a lovely lady. I'll, I'll help you out. I'll, I'll tell this Thursby guy for you. And, and Bogart gives him such a look. It's just like little subtle thing where he's almost rolling his eyes, but it's, it's, it's just perfect. And before I forget, the other thing that I like is that Wonderly isn't Wonderly. Like, I don't know if we ever know, you know, I guess O'Shaughnessy is her real name, but she's Bridget O'Shaughnessy, she's Miss Wonderly, and she's what Miss LeBlanc as well. So it's it's the the Mary Astor person, the character. She plays at least three different roles, and we don't know if any of those are actually her at the end of the day. Yeah, I remember getting to an argument with a friend of mine. Actually, it was on the Cinephiles. You can watch it. We have a little bit of a debate. He didn't like her performance. I deserve that, but the lie was in the way I said it. Not at all in what I said. 
he thought it was overwrought and it's very much of its time. I was, and my whole thing was like, but that's the character. You don't know if she's acting that. You know, we don't know what 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 whether what we're seeing is the real person or it's just an act or she's so used to doing that to get her way. She doesn't know when to turn it off. And that's why I think is the beauty of Mary Astor's performance in that. Even right to the end, you don't even know if she really loves him or cares for him. Part of what I think doesn't uh, John Houston doesn't get. Well, I mean, I think now he does, but he get he's an actor's director. I mean, he's great with other forms of directorial technique and, you know, some of the low angle shots and high angle shots in the Maltese Falcon are splendid. But I really find him that he pulls out these moments out of his actors um, that really came out of a lot of different techniques. And so someone like Mary Astor was really coached to do a few different things. And so to keep her character feeling um, nervous and out of breath in one of the stories that John Houston would tell, he would have Mary Astor run around the set several times just to exhaust herself. So when she finally did the take, her she actually literally had this kind of out of breath aspect to her because Houston knew what he wanted to get on the scene. And I think when I follow up on what both you and Mike were saying, Eric, I really do think she ends up not being kind of a performance just of her period. I don't think it's really dated in the way that other actors and actresses in this era are. I think she's extremely well cast. It's not easy playing this kind of character who's a cipher because she does have a very interesting character arc that unless we're really believing her performance, the whole final act of this film would fall flat, I think, without Mary Astor, just like I think it falls very flat in uh, the 1931 film without an actor of a similar uh, talent. They hadn't really defined the film to tell character that was associated with this kind of genre of film yet, right? You had like the silent film vamps and things like that. But so, so people look to her as being the original femme fatale, but she doesn't really fit into that usual mode that we, we associate with femme fatale, you know, dark hair, sexy, you know, that kind of thing. She, she's something different and unique. And I, I just I, I think her performance is fascinating to watch because you're looking for that tell. OK, is this is when is she performing in this scene? Is, is she is, is her is she just doing this to try to get, you know, Sam Spade to be on her side or what's going on here? And, I, and that's what I think is fascinating about her performance. She reminds me a lot of like a school marm than rather than like a, a theta bearer or something. You know, she's, right. She is so sweet and innocent looking. And that's one of the things, too, is we've talked about, like, do we believe that she ever really loved Sam Spade? The love aspect of their relationship might have suffered a little bit under the production code, but I never really see them falling in love. It almost feels like that is something that is expected in the story. You take a man and a woman and you put them together in a movie together and have several scenes. Yes, of course they're going to fall in love, but it's almost a surprise at the end when he's like, you know, maybe I love you and maybe you love me. And I'm just like, really? You love this girl? I didn't think you liked her at all, because I don't see you liking very many people other than maybe Effie, your secretary. That speech he gives at the end to her is an interesting, because this is something I noticed, I didn't notice before, I don't know why, but it's he's rationalizing his way out of it. 
you know, he's trying to rationalize his, his end game is I am going to rationalize myself to get this woman arrested. And then I can move on. But it's almost like he's he's like bullshitting himself while he's feeding her all this stuff. And I think it's a really interesting moment. And, and Bogart uh, reads the lines very interestingly. Listen, this won't do any good. You'll never understand me, but I'll try once and then give it up. When a man's partner is killed, he's supposed to do something about it. It doesn't make any difference what you thought of. And he was your partner and you're supposed to do something about it. And it happens we're in the detective business. Well, when one of your organization gets killed, it's it's bad business to let the killer get away with it. Bad all around, bad for every detective everywhere. You don't expect me to think of these things you're saying. A sufficient reason for sending me to the... Wait till I'm through, then you can talk. I've no earthly reason to think I can trust you, and if I do this and get away with it, you'll have something on me that you can use whenever you want to. Since I've got something on you, I couldn't be sure that you wouldn't put a hole in me someday. All those are on one side. Maybe some of them are unimportant. I won't argue about that. But look at the number of them. And what have we got on the other side? All we've got is that maybe you love me and maybe I love you. You know whether you love me or not. Maybe I do. Well, I'll have some rotten nights after I've sent you over, but that'll pass. Yeah, and he kind of stares off into space while he's saying it as well. Um, I think an interesting thing, too, about the ending is how much they changed it during production, because the screenplay reads just like the novel. The screenplay ends like the novel. It ends in Sam Spade's office with with his uh, secretary, Effie, giving him shit for what he did to Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Right. But in the movie, they just end it after they take her away and he walks down the stairs. And it's my understanding that Bogart came up with the dreams are made of this line on the spot because they couldn't figure out they didn't have any dialogue during that scene and, and Houston felt like they needed something some sort of way to cap it off Houston used to get credit for that and I think he was interviewed later on he's like I, I have to give credit where credit's due it was Bogart that came up with that line that line from the Tempest I think from Shakespeare the mystery itself I think about it sometimes like uh, Alfred Hitchcock style MacGuffin I mean ultimately it doesn't matter what the Blackbird is about except that it is the premise by which all of these interesting characters get together. Um, One of my favorite scenes in the entire film are when Spade and Gutman, Bogart and Greenstreet sit down and it opens with the famous, let's talk about the bird. You're the man for me, sir. No beating about the bush, right to the point. I tell you right out, I'm a man who likes talking to a man who likes to talk. Let's talk about the blackbird by all means. You get just this idea that the most important thing about the Maltese Falcon is not only that it's the stuff that dreams are made of, but it's really the rationale for propelling this mystery that has a little bit of everything. It has a murder. It has a putative femme fatale. It has a mystery around, you know, what exactly are Cairo and Gutman up to kind of this uh, mystery aspect to it. Um, And that's what I've always loved about what Houston does as the film comes to its conclusion is to really find a form of storytelling that matches the story he's trying to tell. And after all of that dynamic opening that involves a lot of rapid cutting and setting up the scenes, as Mike talked about a little while ago, the ending is really a long take that puts just all of these individuals in literally until 
things can play out. And it's just this series of reversals and counter reversals that are just really fun without ever falling fully into campiness or feeling like an activity mystery. And I think a lot of the credit for that in terms of the staging, the energy and the acting goes to uh, Houston. But you're absolutely correct. He would have trusted his actors. And if there's a great ad lib from someone like Bogart that generated a fabulous line, why not build that just right into the legend of this film? You don't really get better than those introductions of Joel Cairo and Casper Gutman. Joel Cairo coming in to the office after he's introduced via his card and introduced via the smell of gardenia and that wonderful musical flourish when Sam Spade takes a whiff of his card. Oh my God, it's so good. And this was, I mean, last year and the probably the year before, we have talked about Peter Lorre so much on the projection booth. And I honestly can't say enough about this guy. And the thing I talked about with the last movie role that, that we spoke, when it comes to Peter Lorre, the thing that I always love about him is the way that he can raise his eyebrows and almost the entire his entire head of hair moves when that happens. And you don't get Peter Lorre looking any better than he does in this movie. He has lost all the baby fat. He's got the fixed teeth. He's got this amazing curly hair in this movie that you never see any other time that I can think of with, with uh, Laurie. And he is just oily in this movie. And he just exudes this kind of Cheshire cat uh, calmness. But then he's just so... So shocked all the time, especially when it comes to violence. How dare anyone commit any sort of violence against him and that he gets blood on his shirt? He's so upset about that. God, I love just watching him in this movie. He's just so captivating. And the same can be said for Sidney Greenstreet. I mean, that you have one character as good as this in a movie, much less two, both of these guys who are usually aren't on screen at the same time, just your eyes are just drawn to them. And the way that, again, going back to, to Houston, the way that Houston frames these guys, the way that he follows them around, that whole sequence that I was talking about with Cairo coming into Spade's office, that's wonderful. The way that we travel from Spade's desk over to the chair, over to the sink, seeing him in the mirror, and just all of these movements around this room, it's like a ballet. And it's also interesting how they got around the Hayes Code, because it's a lot more overt in the novel. There's some stuff that's pretty overt in the first version, film version of Multistock, and I think the first film version is more salacious uh, than this version. But in this one, it's like you talk about Joe Cairo's introduction. That, that's a great introductory scene to that character. But the stuff he has, Peter, I don't know if it's Houston's idea or Peter Lurie's idea, but the stuff he's doing with that cane. That he's almost filleting that cane? There's this story I heard. I can't remember where I read this or heard this, but they use the word at one point, uh, Sam Spade calls Wilmer. Elijah Cook's character, Gunzel, because in the novel, it's 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 not implied at all that that Gutman and Wilmer are lovers, right? You're like uh, Wilmer, sort of Gutman's rent boy, so to speak. And uh, at, at one point in the movie, John Huston's script had Sam Spade call him a Gunzel, 
which has become part of like film noir gangster film vernacular, right? Because it was introduced in this film. You know, the studio was like, wait a minute, I'm not sure about that word. Why are you calling him? It sounds kind of effeminate. It's like, no, 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 no. This is a word, you know, refers to a guy who carries around a gun, right? It turns out, no, it's Yiddish for little gay man. And Houston wanted that in there because he wanted to have something in there that was still reminiscent of what was going on in uh, Hammett's novel. Yeah, I think Hammett, Use that one to kind of get around his editors because Hammett threw in a couple other things that got cut out. There was one line I was reading in uh, William F. Nolan's book about Hammett because he said something about to, – to Wilmer, I think he said something about, are you still uh, doing the gooseberry something or other? And it was basically – it was a – a term for stealing clothes that got cut out, but Gunzel got left in because the editor. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was Hammett that 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 slipped it in there and not used. Gunzel is a fantastic word. I was actually looking up the the Yiddish version of it to see what uh, the the etymology of it. Basically, it's Yiddish for gosling, so young goose, and then uh, usually is associated with a catamite. And then um, in street or prison slang, it is a passive partner in anal intercourse. You learn lots of things here on the projection booth. Now remember that, because the more you know. Gutman there grabbing Sam Spade's Sam Spade's knee just has so much more to it when you pick up on those keys of of what's really going on with this and what's going on with with Wilmer and and Gutman and it it really helps that with Green Street's kind of uh, erudite almost British accent that he has that uh, Wilmer sounds a lot like Wilma. So every time he calls him Wilma, I'm just like, why is he calling him by that name? And then it took me for so long to, to realize that he was calling him Wilmer. Wilma! Not necessarily a, a name that we run across too often in the 21st century, but my goodness, does it fit that character well? I have to, I have to say something about Green Street. Uh, he's amazing in this. Partially his performance and what Houston, Houston does a really interesting thing with him where like he'll have him sitting a lot. And it's one thing that, you know, the famous, you know, camera shots, if they're shot from the ground up to really emphasize his size and everything like that. But he does this thing where he's, he's sitting a lot, but then when he gets up, he shoots and he moves really quickly. Like he darts, it just, just kind of shocks you like, holy shit. Cause you, cause you expect this like sedentary overweight man who's very slow kind of, you know, getting there up in age and all that stuff. But when he moves, this guy is dangerous. Green Street is amazing in that performance and capturing that. Part of what's lost over time, Eric, is it's not only Green Street, but it's Green Street with Peter Lorre. Um, yeah. Part of what's so much fun is if you go back to the 1940s, most people don't recognize how many films Sidney Green Street and Peter Lorre did together because while it's very iconic in the Maltese Falcon, um, and people probably remember it from the following year when they appear again, but not frequently on screen together in Casablanca, they forget that there were actually this pairing in the Maltese Falcon is so successful in the 1940s, between 1941 and 1946, Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet are in nine films together. I didn't know that. 
I, I, I'm aware yes. of Mask of Demetrius. That that yes. one I've seen also, as a blanket, but not the other ones. They were in background the danger, passage to Marseille, the conspirators, mm-hmm. the verdict, and three strangers on top of the Mask of Demetrius. So they they really were well cast and well suited. And even in a film like the Max of Demetrios that actually gives them a lot of on-screen time in the same room like the Maltese Falcon, they never really achieve a better pairing with what they were given to work with, especially the great dialogue that literally comes from the Hammett uh, source novel. And I just always want to point it out because I think it's been lost a little bit um, to the fog of time that people think that they really were great in this film, but there's a lot of others. If people are just fans of that, you got you can go much deeper. You know, fun fact: Casper Gutman is actually six foot three and only two hundred thirty nine pounds. Cue the music and that star thing. What was it like? He was in his sixties or something when he first was cast in the Maltese Falcon. And he hadn't done movies, and he was more of a, a stage actor. This is actually Sidney Greenstreet's film debut. He was 61 years old um, when he makes uh, his uh, debut in The Maltese Falcon. Yeah, there are so many stories that go along with this, and we're not going to sit here and read. Now, I know you didn't just read the IMDb trivia page, but I'm saying that we're not going to read the IMDb trivia page about this because there are all these stories. And we actually, I sometimes, this is a little aside, but sometimes I get called out for like, you didn't mention this thing about the movie. And it's like, yeah, because either it's apocryphal or everybody should know this stuff. So like, we're not going to talk about like, oh, well, you know, John Houston just gave the book to his secretary and told her to write it up as script form. And then Jack Warner came in and found it on his desk and that became the script and blah, blah, blah. Because who knows that that's John Houston telling that story. So there's a good chance 99% of the time, John Houston was more about the stories and actually about the truth. So who knows if that's true or if that's bullshit or not. And it, frankly, who cares? So, we're not going to tell all those kind of stories and stuff because there's a ton of those that are out there. Like, but sorry, I, I a little bit on my soapbox because it's just like, you know, well, you know, and it's just like, yeah, everybody fucking knows these stories. And if you don't listen to the goddamn commentary or some shit like that. So, which I can't recommend the commentary for this movie, by the way, it was the guy who did it did a pretty good job but he kept telling the same stories like over and over and over again so it's just like okay are you going to tell the story about the green room at warner brothers again this is one of those films that is more than the sum of its parts very few times i think does a film come together as the well-made film in the way like the maltese falcon comes together it reminds me of the of, of a watch mechanism where every single thing that John Houston tried to do literally worked and he was really working without a net. He we didn't really know that detective fiction was going to evolve in the way that it was over the next uh, 15 years right to film noir and yet I think he was this intuitive artist. So even if there are things we didn't cover or can't even possibly cover unless we're going to do the uh, 12-hour version of the Maltese Falcon Projection Booth podcast, which, again, I'm game for it. But, uh, you know, I think the most important part is to try to watch this film 
not as a masterpiece or as a classic, but actually watch it shot by shot, scene by scene, and just watch John Huston instinctually shooting and cutting and directing actors in ways that were against the grain of what other filmmakers were doing in the early 1940s. And I just think, you know, again, we're so used to this being a masterpiece, we forget that at one time, there are audiences seeing it for the first time and just being blown away. And I, and, I, and I always hate films like this becoming a classic. It's almost like a classic novel where the word classic almost dulls its excitement. This is still an exciting film to watch in 2018, even if it's been viewed by, your, by anyone in the audience numerous times. It's always worth a spin on the old DVD or Blu-ray. When you talk about how well shot this is, there's two very filmic moments that I really love in this. And one is when we tilt down to where it says Spade and Archer on the floor uh, in the shadows from the, the sign on the window or on the door. And it's this great way to just kind of say the scene has ended but to show Spade and Archer are together. And then we're about to go to where Archer's going to meet his maker. But the shadows on the floor, and I always wonder if those were really shadows or somebody just came in and painted those on the floor because they look so crisp. It is wonderful to see that. The other thing that I love is the one kind of odd fade out, which is, Going back to that scene with Joel Cairo, Sam Spade has taken away Cairo's gun. They have this delightful conversation, gives back the gun to Cairo after this is all done. Cairo puts the gun back on him and says, you know, you will kindly clasp your hands behind uh, the back of your head. And Sam Spade starts to laugh and the scene fades out. It's like one of the few fade outs that we have in the movie. And it's amazing because the scene shouldn't be over at that point. Like, we should probably wonder what is going to happen. But we are so confident that we've seen Sam Spade just take away Cairo's gun. We know nothing bad is going to happen to this guy. And I just love that we as the, the audience aren't upset seeing the scene fade. Maybe only upset to say, oh, I wish I could see these two actors go at it some more. But, God, I love that. It's just we know that Sam Spade has not a care in the world at that moment, that he's laughing, that he's got that cigarette hanging out of his mouth, and Joel Cairo's just this completely ineffectual gangster. And I do just want to quickly – I mentioned Wilmer before. This was – one of the uh, earliest roles from Elijah Cook Jr. as well. And Elijah Cook Jr., uh, we'll talk about him more a little bit later because he was in uh, one of the quote-unquote sequels to, yes, to the uh, Maltese Falcon. But, um, and actually, and he was also in Hammett, which was a nice tie-in as well. But Elijah Cook Jr., I know I've talked about Elijah Cook Jr. on the show before, uh, probably all the way back to the Electric Light and Blue episode. Whenever Elijah Cook Jr., and just actually a couple weeks ago on uh, the Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid episode, whenever Elijah Cook Jr. shows up, it is amazing. And he is so good in this. And I love just that. He's such this little wimpy guy wearing this coat that's five times too big for him and just that tough guy thing. And I love that uh, that Spade even calls him out, you know, the, the cheaper the crook, the gaudier the patter. And just that he has that whole like, you just keep riding me, you keep riding me. And I just love that he just 
boils up so slowly through this film and he just gets angrier and angrier in the way that that uh humphrey bogart just keeps riding him and just keep poking at him he knows that he's making him angry and i just love the way that he does that i mean again just every time these guys are speaking to each other and richie just mentioned the dialogue the dialogue is so great in this movie and just uh the the way that they speak to one another and the way that he just keeps Pounding on on Wilmer through the whole movie is fantastic. This comes out of the Hammett. This comes out of the vernacular that when I think about Hammett as a writer, he really understood the hard-boiled vernacular. And the language that just comes out of Elijah Cook Jr.'s performance, and, you know, I'm a super fan of Elijah Cook Jr. I mean, I would struggle to even imagine the history of film noir without him in numerous films where he is frequently just always magnetic when he's on screen. But I just love just how he is the little guy trying to stand up to Humphrey Bogart with lines like, you know, keep asking for it and you're going to get it plenty. I told you to shove off, shove off. Humphrey Bogart, as Sam Spade comes back and goes, people lose teeth talking like that. You know, you want to hang around, you'll be polite. And that type of dialogue is Cracker Jack. That is just absolutely fantastic. And even within their differences of their acting performances, that it really speaks to both of their characters. The one small guy trying to be the big guy and the big guy who just feels no threat at all from the people who keep surrounding the mystery of the black bird. Just like no one phases Spade in this film. So real quick, um, I did a little uh, research uh, <laughs> over the last few minutes and found in the uh, Dictionary of the Underworld of uh, British and American slang, Gooseberry, that I mentioned before that got censored from the Maltese Falcon. Gooseberry in the uh, the gaudy patter, as it were, comes up a lot. And I will say that what I was trying to think of was Gooseberry Lay, so L-A-Y. So that's why it was cut out. It was that they thought that that was a bad term, like having sex. But a gooseberry lay or the gooseberry lay is stealing wet clothes from a clothesline. So there you go. Now you know, next time you do that, what you have done. Don't do that. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. And I do hope that a lot of people in the projection booth audience now goes out uh, after they hear this podcast and talks a lot about gooseberries and gunsels. I had to be a very good thing. <laughs> now that you've heard the term gunsel, you go back and watch some of these movies, you're going to hear that term a lot. I told that gunsel of yours you'd have to talk to me before you're through. I'm telling you now, you'll talk to me today or you're through. What are you wasting my time for? I can get along without you. And another thing, keep that gunsel out of my way while you're making up your mind. I'll kill him if you don't, I'll kill him. There's a story I heard a long time ago, and I don't know if this is true. I don't know if this is a John Houston story or not. There's a story I heard about people that make Persian rugs, devout Persians who make rugs. And they say that a person who makes a Persian rug, who believes in Allah and who's a devout Muslim, will on purpose make a mistake when they're making this rug because only Allah can make something that is perfect. So there's always like a flaw in there. And if I were to point out the flaw 
of the Maltese Falcon. There's probably a lot, and there's probably the continuity errors, and oh my god, his cigarette's too long in this scene, and all that kind of horseshit. The one thing that always gets me, that now just makes me laugh, but the first time I was just like, what the fuck is going on, is that horrible ADR at the end, when Gutman is scraping at the Falcon that finally we see revealed and you hear somebody who the fuck knows who this is. And I guess it's supposed to be Gutman. Somebody go fake. It's a phony. It's lead. It's lead. It's a fake. And I'm just like, who the hell is that supposed to be? Cause that's nobody's voice. that was on set that day. It's an odd moment. It's a weird ADR, you know, what What can you say? But you know what? We live in an age of, like, really bad superhero movies. They could have done a digital replace. I'll, I'll, I'll take that bad ADR. Because, you know, we're supposed to have exceptional CGI and, and uh, Superman's upper lip still look creepy. Well, it was, it's funny you mentioned there's also, that, like, the way he's scraping the bird. It's like the knife isn't really touching the bird, right? There's a moment there where I'm afraid the actor is going to, like, cut himself. But I, it's like the film is so good. It, it, it's if it's not perfection, it's near perfection. That 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 moment, that's just such a nitpick to me. It is a nitpick. It, but like I said, now I laugh when that moment comes up. The first time I was just like, "What? What is going on here?" But now it's just it's funny to me. And now I'll actually say the lines with the movie. I don't tend to do that too often. I don't do Rocky Horror with the multi-falcon too often though i did find myself last time watching it saying some of the lines as they were saying them or right before they're saying them because again going back to it the dialogue is just so good in this movie mike it's so good and almost all of it is hammett that's the amazing thing i mean houston was really he's done like almost entire film career has been adaptations and he's a purist. He he is usually he likes to faithfully adapt to the point of retaining the original dialogue. And why would you want to change? I mean, Hammett is an amazing dialogue. As you read any of his stories, uh, any of his novels, uh, from Red Harvest to Glass Key, which Glass Key is great. It's fantastic. I couldn't recommend that enough. Inspired Miller's Crossing. It's just I mean, Hammett himself went to Hollywood to be a screenwriter. And there's a reason for that. He had a great ear for dialogue. And his background, I mean, I guess we have to get into this background as a Pinkerton, uh, Mm -hmm. really informs his work. At one point, his office was in a building called the Continental in San Francisco, right? The Continental Trust Company. And one that inspired the name for the detective agency that his other detective character, the Continental Op, worked for, the Continental Operatives of San Francisco. But also in that building, they would have these fixtures uh, by the windows and in the entrance of the building, there were little statuettes of falcons. And it said that's what inspired his, uh, you know, MacGuffin for his novel. Go someplace where we can talk. No, no, no. Our private conversations have not been such that I'm anxious to continue them. Forgive my speaking so bluntly, but it is the truth. All right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back right after these brief messages. They're the movie podcasts where very serious people talk about very serious things, analyzing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. They're also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drunked up skunks. 
But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs, and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary, and Facial Mass Arts, please take exit 37 off I 98 and ask for Terrence. You know, the girl from that, the, yes, the, yes, the I know show exactly on that. God, I know exactly um, who you're talking about. She has the hair. The, the hair was, it, it was different and she has the, 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 the lips. She has the lips with the, okay, yeah, wait, she, no, she was just, okay. You've seen her a million movies. You know, but the, who, but the one that we're talking about the exact same person. We don't always suck as bad as this but listen to me chris gore and anthony ray bench on the film threat podcast you got questions sometimes we have the answers it's not easy having a good time and it's not cheap either every week the projection booth brings you a new show possibly even two focusing on all genres of cinema If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema and also the only first run seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one 
the projection booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. We're back and we're talking about the Maltese Falcon. For a little while, the current wave of superhero films that have been tentpole movies for the last few summers, um, you know, we had been and kind of still are going through a terrible spate of remakes. And I, for one, have been kind of tired of people whining about remakes. I mean, for the most part, they're not that great. Reboots don't necessarily always work amazing spider-man um but you know this whole idea of like stop remaking classic movies Maltese falcon is a remake and or a reboot Uh, as you pointed out rich this is more of a reboot uh it's a it's a hard reboot you know now they have soft reboots and hard reboots because yeah there were these two other versions of this and they weren't even that far behind this is kind of i mentioned uh, amazing spider-man this is kind of like spider-man was where you had the Amazing Spider-Man movies, I don't know how many years before that the that horrible last Tobey Maguire film was, but the last Amazing Spider-Man wasn't that long ago compared to Spider-Man Homecoming, and this is three movies within a period of ten years. This has come up on our Cinephiles Facebook group. You know, people will every now and then some little posts start a thread where they're going to complain, you know, about remakes. Why is everyone remake crazy? And I point out, well, you know, there was a period where films were being remade all the time. And I always cite the Maltese Falcon. You know, I explained to me, you know, John Hunt Houston's Maltese Falcon was the second remake. It was the third version of that book. And it was the third version of that book within a decade. So we've seen this three times. Uh, within a 10 year period. And, you know, they, you know, you could also like, like how many we had like two Jekyll and Hyde's within in like almost five years, you know, that kind of thing. Now, then we get to the argument, well, is it a remake or just another adaptation? You know, and, you know, there's that like that sort of weird, you know, kind of like fine line. Well, do we consider this just another adaptation? I mean, how many stage productions of Hamlet should we say are remakes of the prior stage production of Hamlet? Right. I was actually, I had never seen the first, I've heard of the first Maltese Falcon. I, I knew it was out there. As I knew Satan Metal Lady was out there, um, I'd never seen the first version before. And I'm, and when I watched, uh, rewatched Maltese Falcon, the Houston version last week, and I decided to watch the first two first. So I did this whole marathon of, of Falcon movies, right? <laughs> and it was a really interesting experience because the first one, is also in its weird way faithful to the novel. It takes certain liberties, but they're not large liberties. But other than that, the characters are the same. A lot of the dialogue is still there. And it's really interesting to see what Houston does with almost the same story, almost the same script, but how different it is depending upon who says the lines, how it's directed. It's it's really striking. There are scenes in the 31 film that are literally faithfully uh, similar in uh, the 41 version with John Huston because 
some of it, such as when Spade and Gutman are talking, it's staged as two people sitting in chairs and uttering similar lines. But when you watch the 31 version, you just feel the absence of Bogart and Greenstreet because Ricardo Cortez is just no Humphrey Bogart. You know, you start to you can really do an interesting comparison and contrast. You sit down, Mr. Carroll. Thank you, sir. Sit down, doctor. Thank you. Well, sir, what can I do for you? Allow me first to offer condolences for your partner's unfortunate death. Oh, yes. Thanks. Uh, was there, as the newspapers indicated, any connection between his death and uh, the death of the man Thursby? Oh, I don't know. Why should there be? I'm not merely curious, Mr. Spade, but uh, it occurred to me that the two, shall we say, accidents, might have something to do with a certain ornament that I'm trying to recover. Not for myself, but for the rightful owner. Uh-huh. I thought and hoped you could assist me. The ornament uh, is a statuette, black figure of a bird. I am prepared to pay on behalf of the figure's rightful owner the sum of $5,000 for its recovery. 5000 And I can promise you that no questions will be asked. $5,000 is a lot of money. Yes, Abby? No, that'll be all. Just be sure to lock the door behind you on your way out. Good night. Five thousand dollars. You will clasp your hands together at the back of your neck. I intend to search your offices, Mr. Spade. What are you doing? Kidding me? You will please clasp your hands together at the back of your neck. Okay, doctor. I'm going to search your office, Mr. Spade. And if you attempt to prevent me, I shall certainly shoot you. Stand up, please. I must see that you're not armed. The part that always gets me thinking about the difference between 31 and 41 is really the difference between sound film in its infancy and sound film reaching maturity 10 years later and censorship changes where the 31 film is very much a pre-code film because the Hollywood production code doesn't really start to be enforced until about 1934. And so you do have in the opening sequence, uh, Ricardo Cortez's performance of Sam Spade, he is much more of a ladies' man in that opening sequence. And there's a lot more shots of legs and a lot more overt sexuality in the opening scenes than if filmed 10 years later, because you would typically think that things would be getting racier 10 years on, but the production code really forces a lot of the sexual coding to go underground and filmmakers have to be more creative about expressions of sexuality. And probably the only other thing I would point out that fascinates me about this idea of an adaptation or a remake is that I still feel when Warner Brothers buys the rights to the Maltese Falcon, a couple different things happen um, in my when I want to think about this. The first is Hammett really writes the Maltese Falcon, you know, and it's published first in Pulp Fiction form in Black Mask magazine in 1929 and then serialized as a detective novel in 1930. And so the 31 version is really 
a kind of hot off the presses. You know, it has this flush in the new that in 31, Hammett is the cause celeb, that this is very, uh, the novel has a lot of following. And I think it's fascinating that they choose to film two more versions of it within a decade, which I think speaks to the durability of the underlying uh, story. It's just interesting that since those fast three adaptations or three remakes within 10 years, that it really hasn't been fully revisited except as it starts to become more parodically adapted or intertextually played with in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. So I just it just becomes interesting that clearly this story what meant something to that generation. Um, and that uh, the way I've always felt it is that um, they kept trying to get a version on film that was faithful to the original novel. And the first one comes up very short for a variety of reasons that I'm sure we're going to get into a little bit more. I was surprised by how much I liked in the first one more than I, I, I was kind of pleasantly surprised by it. I don't think it's, it's anywhere near as good as, I mean, Again, it was interesting watching his films back to back because then you watch Houston's version and you're just like, yes, this is a masterpiece. It just heads it above the uh, previous two. But the first one, like Ricardo Cortez, he, his, he's interesting in it. I try to do some research on the actor after I watched it because I, you know, I was like, who is this guy? And apparently he had a successful leading man career in the 30s and then he turned to directing. He was directing B-movies in the 40s and then he retired altogether from Hollywood, became a stockbroker or something like that. His perform his interpretation, even though he doesn't have the presence or charisma of, of, of say, Humphrey Bogart, if you read the novel, that's the Stan Spade I pictured when you read the novel. In fact, if I were a fanboy in 1941, <laughs> like like I was a comic book fanboy today, and I heard that they cast Humphrey Bogart as Stan Spade, I'd probably be, you know, doing whatever the 1941 uh, equivalent of being an internet troll, you know, is complaining about that. Rest assured that I was on the internet within minutes, registering my disgust throughout the world. Bogart does not fit the description. You know, in fact, George Raft, who was originally, you know, offered the role, he fits the description of Stan Spade as he's described in, in Dashiell Hammett's novel. Uh, so I, even though Ricardo Cortez himself is too dark complexion for the, because the character described as blonde, I thought he got the essence of, you know, cause Spade is a late, he's this sort of slimy guy, slimy ladies, man type. It's also implied in a novel that this isn't like a seedy detective, you know, agency, cheap detective agency. They're actually high class, you know, the office building they work out. I forgot the name of it, but it was a famous building in San Francisco was at the time considered the elite office building in San Francisco. There's a reason why their their business is in that building, because they have a higher end clientele and all that kind of thing. Ricardo Cortez, God bless him. I didn't think he was bad at it. I thought he was charming. You get the sense he, he understood the part. He's no Bogart by any means. But I, I actually was surprised at how much I, I liked his performance in it. And there were little things in the film that I thought were very interesting. It's weird that it was the first film version, but it feels like a, a bad imitation of, of Houston's. Yeah, those scenes where you're seeing the adaptation come the closest, it's interesting to just take those and kind of put them side by side in your head and like, oh, well, they had this as one full scene here, and they had it as two scenes 
in the Houston version. Like I'm thinking particularly of when Spade goes to visit Gutman and it becomes um, him talking to him about the Falcon. I like a man who likes to, I like to talk to a man who likes to talk that kind of thing. And then rather than there being that break where Spade leaves and he talks to the DA and they comes and he gives that, uh, that speech about, you know, the, where he, he kind of acts upset um, and then leaves it's all played out as one thing. Then he gets the Mickey slip to him in that scene. There's a little bit of a break where Gutman goes in the other room and then comes back. And there's this whole thing in this one, like uh, we're really playing with this being in San Francisco. So there are at least two Asian characters in this film. And the one Asian character kind of plays a role later on where, you know, he, says he knows who killed uh, Miles Archer. But anyway, that that is all played as one scene. And also what I was talking about at the very beginning of this podcast, where we stay with Sam Spade throughout so much of the Houston version, but in this 31 version, we move away from Spade several times. And that is one of those scenes where we move away from Spade and we see what's happening in the other room that we see that Joel Cairo is there and Sam Spade doesn't know that he's there. True. Sam Spade doesn't necessarily know that Cairo is there in the Houston version. He kind of comes out afterwards after uh, Spade has been slipped to Mickey, but it's interesting that the camera actually isn't with Sam Spade at that moment. It's kind of like, after he takes the $500 from Bridget O'Shaughnessy in the 31 version, he leaves the room, and then we see her, to your point, Rich, we see her uh, hike up her skirt and pull a wad of money out of her uh, garter. So, yeah, we're seeing that she's more duplicitous than he even knows that she is. I was trying to think about, kind of on Eric's point, if I really wanted to appreciate this film on its own merits and try, if I were just, you know, instead of being the 41 fanboy, being, say, the 1931 film reviewer, watching this with fresh eyes, not knowing it's going to be adapted two more times by other filmmakers in different veins, um, what would I appreciate about it? First, I think it's very much in the mold of a Warner Brothers gangster film. I think it's more gangsterish uh, for me. Um, it has a lot of moments that don't really have the noirish undercurrents that we associate with um, the 1941 film. The second thing we have, I think, is Ricardo Cortez, who in, in some scenes actually is quite effective. I like the first time that Dr. Joel Cairo comes in to hold him up to search for whether or not he has the black bird. And the kind of grin and the hands behind his head that Cortez flashes very much fits within the character and that scene in a way that is effective on its own merits without needing to say it's not as good as the 41 version. It very much is uh, well done for a Warner Brothers gangster film of 1931. And then the final part that I think I just want to appreciate about the 31 film is it does have its own internal logic where it is faithful to the story. And I think it's just important to, um, you know, think about that the film actually does work on its own merits. It's by no means a masterpiece. It's not necessarily a major work of the 1931 that we're going to 
want to celebrate as having the same type of contributions to cinematic history that the Houston film does. But I think if I were a paying theater goer in 1931, I would have been pleasantly surprised um, at this film and not have felt that I was being you know, disappointed. Although the ending is very weird. It's a very strange ending. He goes in there, he visits her in jail, and, and she doesn't, like, she sticks with the name, the first name, the assumed name, right? That's her name throughout the entire film, Wonderly. She never goes to Bridget O'Shaughnessy or whatever. And uh, he visits her in jail, and he's genuinely, you know, you get the sense, he, you know, there's a sadness. He feels sorry for her, and, you know, and he's, you know, he does this whole thing, I'll wait for you when you get out. And then he makes that comment about, you know, make sure... To, to the to the uh, female warden, make sure you know she gets what she needs and and put it on the DA's bill. Ha 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 ha! Walks away, and I'm just like, what? <laughs> what happens? <laughs> it is faithful enough that it feels like you've been watching a favorite movie, and there's suddenly an extra bit at the end where you're just like, wait a second, no, this isn't supposed to be here. It's supposed to be. She goes down in the elevator. There's that great shot of the the cage from the elevator going across her face like she's in the jail cell. We don't need to see her in the jail cell, but here's all this extra stuff. And it just keeps going, too. Yeah, it's like that's that's what I think is really interesting is that none of the film versions end the way the novel does. And in the, the Houston version, if you read the screenplay, it was originally going to end the way the novel ended. Well, doesn't he go back to Ida Archer uh, or Iva Archer after all that? It's sort of. He in, in the script, which is exactly what happens in the book, he goes back to the office and 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 Effie basically treats him with contempt for the way he treated Bridget O'Shaughnessy. Right. And then it ends with him in his office and she, and, and Effie announces Iva's here and it just ends. Um, and, uh, that's how the script ended. And I have no idea what, what decision Houston made to cut all that out and just end it with, uh, Bogart walking down the stairs with the bird in his hand. But I, I think it was a brilliant choice for him to do that. It ends perfectly. I will say that the 31 version was a walk in the park. And I actually did enjoy a lot of this. And to your point, Rich, I would have been absolutely fine like, this would have been an okay movie. And yeah, 1931, my God, we came so far in 10 years. You know, it's one of these, like, technological advances of of, of uh, just amazing proportions when we go from 31 to 41. And we see that the camera can move. We see all these different angles that were allowed, all this kind of stuff, the way that the sound is, is being recorded. Had 31 just stood alone and 41 never came, we wouldn't be having this podcast about the 1931 version. We wouldn't be sitting here just like lauding this film as being this groundbreaking thing and all these amazing performances. We would maybe it would be a, a footnote, which is kind of what it is today. But the movie that probably shouldn't even get talked about <laughs> in the same breath. And this might just be me, but I had a real hard time watching Satan Met a Lady, which was the 1936 version, which to me just felt like a massive misfire. And as I was watching it, you just get like get like the shadow of the Maltese Falcon over the rest of the film, but you never really get close enough, and you never really get to anything that can kind of stand on its own and actually be funny, which is what I think they're going for. They're going for comedy with this movie. Yeah, it's supposed to be a screwball comedy. Um, <sighs> and the humor doesn't really work. But not only that, what's, what's really, it's a frustrating film because, 
if you're a fan of both the novel and Houston's version, you're sitting there and you're like, is this a remake? I think it's a remake. Oh, I guess it's not a remake. They're just taking like the basic bones, you know, the, the basic structure of the book and doing its own thing. And then they'll do something where they'll have a scene where they retain the dialogue and the structure of that scene from the novel. But they have different characters saying the lines with different motivations. And it just totally keeps throwing you off. It's, it's so frustrating. You're like, why didn't you just do a faithful adaptation? Because apparently, I mean, Rich, you might be able to correct me on this, but my understanding is the reason why they made Satan Made a Lady is because they wanted to re-release uh, the original Maltese Falcon, but it was censored because it was pre-Hays Code. So they decided to remake it instead, and for some reason, they decided to re- not only remake it as a screwball comedy, but they wanted to make it as a starring vehicle for Betty Davis, who apparently didn't want to do it. It's one of those films that I have trouble justifying because... I'm not sure whose idea it was to remake the Maltese Falcon as a star vehicle for Betty Davis and as a screwball comedy. I mean, it feels like, um, you know, it's almost like a scene out of uh, Robert Altman's The Player. You almost imagine people sitting around the Warner Brothers lot a year earlier going, you know, what ideas do we got? You know, uh, hit me with some ideas. Oh, the Maltese Falcon. Okay, uh, let's do it as a screwball comedy. Who can we get to star in it? I mean, it's like it doesn't. It's an incoherent film. It's a. <laughs> I, I don't often say this, but it's a terrible movie. It's just. Now, I'll give it two things though that are, I think are very interesting in this film. I think it's really interesting that they changed the gender of Gutman. I think that's a really interesting thing they decided to do with that. Um, and, and, and Gutman is the, the actual Gutman is more of this sort of like adventurer guy who's constantly in the hunt for this thing. Whereas the Gutman analog in this movie, who is a woman is more of like a master criminal, I think, or something. That's also how you get around the homosexuality as well. Right. Like, like this way, the, the, the so-called Wilmer character is her nephew. But I think I think it's interesting that they change their gender, although that scene where they first meet, which is a variation on the, you know, the what we've been talking about. I like talking with a person who likes to talk, you know, kind of scene that is so weird because they do like it in the other versions. He gets his drink spiked, but he only gets his drink spiked until after Gutman gets the information he wants from Spade. Then he know he has it. So now he can get Spade out of the way. Right. And here. She spikes his drink right away without getting any information from him. And we're supposed to think, oh, this detective, this version of Spade is so smart. He knows his drink's been spiked. But not only that, he just offered her a spiked cigarette. And they just laugh about it. Like, oh, we're so smart. And it's like, what? What, what if what if he drank that drink and he passed out? Then what were you going to do? <laughs> you know, because you didn't get anything out of him. But it's yeah, it's just the whole film is like that. It's just so bizarre. The other thing I think is really interesting, actually, is is uh, Betty Davis's take on this character, this so-called Bridget O'Shaughnessy, wonderly character. Uh, she's presented as as probably of the of the three versions, the most strong of the versions. She doesn't pretend to be anything other than a person that's after this bird. And I, and I think it's kind of interesting how at the end she turns herself in as sort of a, you know, finger, middle finger to the, uh, his name is Ted Shane in this, to the Sam Spade character in this one. Like, yeah, I'm not going to let you profit off of me. I'm going to like, you know, go to jail on my own terms kind of thing. So screw you kind of thing. I thought that was kind of interesting. 
Here, I thought you were going to say you were super impressed with Ted Shane's big hat. Oh, I was going to say, what the heck is what? Is that a cowboy hat or a fedora? What is that? <laughs> I found myself having a headache trying to figure that hat out. It looked like it needed dingo balls coming off the sides of it. But I wanted to go back to a point that Eric made much earlier in the uh, podcast. So even as Warner Brothers makes this really bizarre version of the Maltese Falcon, which, you know, just has this really strange version of the MacGuffin of the object of desire, which is a ram's horn filled with different precious gems. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's just a very strange film. Um, One of the things I have always just thought is really strange, because I still don't understand why the audiences would pick up or be attracted to the title of this film, because Satan Met a Lady is an interesting film title. I mean, The Maltese Falcon is an odd title, um, evocative of something, but The Satan Met a Lady comes out of a line of how Dashiell Hammett describes Sam Spade, as being a blonde Satan. And, you know, so I always am amused in this version of the movies named Satan Metal Lady, named after the character being played as a blonde Satan and Warren William as Ted Shane and the Spade character, you know, very, very much is not. A blonde <laughs> so it's just, I, I don't get it. They, they kind of turned Sam Spade into this, like, you know, gentleman about town, you know, this gadabout, <laughs> you know, it, it was like, it was just bizarre. And sometimes he like was affecting an English accent. It was like really weird, really, really, it just no, no. did not work. And it was awkward. Right. Yeah. But the other part I want to jump on, Eric, because I, you made another point that really got me thinking, you know, when you talk about these fanboys so let's talk about cinematic completists in you know for betty davis like if you're a betty davis fan i agree she's really strong in the main female character in this adaptation and you know this is a very interesting um for 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 cinephiles to just think about betty davis in the um you know she's called valerie purvis in this but she's the o'shaughnessy um, Wonderly LeBlanc character, and I'm I. The one thing that I can recommend this for is it's a train wreck of a movie, but nothing with Betty Davis is ever not worth watching. If that's an endorsement, I don't know. You know, it's, you know, I don't know if I would you know heat up the VCR on any particular day to m- make sure I watch this film, but I really think as a trilogy, I do love watching the three versions, and I did your same style. I watched the um, first two um, back-to-back to to get into the headspace uh, for this podcast. And it is. It's fascinating if you're watching them in relationship to the Falcon. It's a redeemable cinematic exercise, if nothing else. Yeah, this is definitely one, if if you're a completist, I would recommend it on that. But other than that, it's really... Like, what is the deal with the Joe Cairo analog? He's, they turned him into this, like, stuffy British guy who... Arthur Treacher. It, it was it was that Arthur Treacher? Okay, I love his fish and chips. They had, like, a good idea for a gag that didn't quite work, where he would, like, return to the scene of the crime to apologize to the people he, like, ransacked their, their offices or, or apartments of, you know, because he thought it was his duty to do that. And I thought that was kind of an amusing idea, but, man... Did they not, their time, the comedic timing in this is awful. 
It's just terrible. Nothing works. And why a horn? And why didn't the gem come out after he blew the horn at the end? I thought for sure there would be one gem. Eric, to answer your question, I have no insight on this except I'm just spitballing. But I keep thinking like Horn of Plenty. It's all I can think of. I don't know why a horn. It makes no friggin' sense. Yeah, I, it's, I don't know. It's like, okay, so if we're not going to be faithful to this, let's not be faithful all the way. Yeah. No, no falcon. We're going to make it a horn. Great idea, guys. Great idea, studio people. I want to talk about like really small parts that turn up in both the first version and second version. The first version, you know, Elijah Cook, brilliant in the, in the Houston version. But the first version, that was Dwight Fry, Renfield from Dracula. Yeah, that was awesome. It was like, it took me a while. I was like, that's Dwight Fry. You know, it's like, that was interesting. But the cameo in uh, Houston's version, Walter Houston, that's really cool. Uh, I, I was like, wow, that's, that's Walter Houston. And I don't, I don't think he, I don't know if he was credited or not. And so I, I looked up afterwards. I was like, what was the deal with Walter Houston being this? Cause Walter Houston was a star at that point. He, he had already been Oscar nominated twice prior to this film. And, uh, it turned out that he did a sort of a good luck charm to his son, but the studios, cause of his contract obligations didn't want him to do it. So he did it for free. I love that. Porter Hall is the Miles Archer character in the second one, uh, Milton Names in the second one. Porter Hall, when I looked him up, because I was like, I know Porter Hall by his face. But then I was just like, Porter Hall, Porter Hall, why do I know that name? And it just went through my head over and over and over again. And then I finally realized that that is one of the character names from Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. All right. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that that actor turns up in another Hammett adaptation, The Thin Man, which which he does. He's in The Thin Man. The way I watched these, it was really bizarre. I watched the 41, then watched the 31. And that same day, I went over to my in-law's house, and I walk in and swear to God, they're watching the 41 version. Like four hours after we watched the 31 version. So we sat there and we watched the 41 again. And so my wife and I are just like, I'm like, oh, isn't that interesting how they split that up into two scenes earlier? And my in-laws are like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, we just watched the 31 version. They're like, oh, there was another version of this movie? Then we watched the 36. And then that was a hardship. And then we watched the the Black Bird, the George Siegel film uh, directed and written by David Geiler. At one point, it was supposed to be written by John Milius and David Geiler. Apparently, Milius was not happy with the way that the project was going, and I can completely understand. The Blackbird. So, first off, there was something weird going on in the 1970s where they were kind of having this like mini renaissance of gumshoe detectives. Like I'm thinking there was like a, a Dreyfus film... There was, of course, Robert Mitchum uh, playing uh, Philip Marlowe. We had The Long Goodbye. Oh, yeah, The Long Goodbye. We had uh, Harry Mosby. We had all of these these uh, detectives going on. I don't know if it was just kind of an answer to you know uh, uh, Watergate or what it was, but George Siegel wasn't necessarily the best person for this, and David Geiler, please, God, never let this man try to do comedy again. It's, it's really bad. It's, it's, it's tasteless and not in a, oh, you know, like, like Mel Brooks was the king of making tasteless funny. This is not that. 
it's it's i mean let's just put it this way i mean his it, this is the son of the original sam spade who's inherited his father's business even the same actress who played effie and john houston's version plays the secretary in this but like because his last name is spade they make all these spade jokes you know because he lives in a neighborhood where it's all you know black people living in a neighborhood and and it's terrible and it's it cringe inducing and and it and a story is stupid that they had to do the spade joke twice. One of them was almost effective, which is when he's in jail and there's like three other black guys in there. And the guy comes in and he says, okay, spade, get up. And all the black guys stand up, but Sam Spade's still sitting there. That one almost made me laugh. Had it not been for the very opening of the film when George Siegel, after he gives this horrible, horrible, uh, 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 voiceover monologue, that we have ADR of these guys making spade jokes. Like, oh, we got spade in this neighborhood. Right. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, this is terrible. It's, it's, it's awful. It's awful. And I'm not sure what this film was trying to do visually because it says straight out this is 1974, was it? Was it when this film was made? In San Francisco, all the police detectives, even like spade, are dressed like it's the 1940s. And there's that scene where he goes over to a nightclub to meet uh, Elijah Cook's uh, character, and he's playing Wilmer, but older. And everyone's driving 1940s-style cars and, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, are they trying to do this, like, stylized thing where it's like an alternate 1970s, but everyone still dresses like it's the 1940s? I mean, I, I wasn't sure what the film was trying to do in that regard either. And, and if they were trying to do something like that, Why? Yeah, uh, there's like all these weird things that were that were going on in the film, I, and the French actress uh, St- Stephanie Audran, I think I'm pronouncing her, na- her name right. I'm not sure. Uh, who's, who's done some amazing work with like Claude Chabrol and all that stuff, and she's terrible in this. I can't tell you one actor or actress who's good in this. The dwarf Nazi guy. Okay. Yeah. Well, Lionel Stander, I guess. But yeah, Felix Silla is, is Litvak. He he's pretty good. I like it. My, my like lasting memory is him running circles around the French actress with the bird in his hand in a knot. You know, that was like the most amusing moment in the entire movie. Yeah. As I'm sitting there trying to make it through this movie, I'm just like, oh, Felix Silla, you know, he was cousin it. And I start looking up his filmography and I'm just going through all of these movies. And I'm just like, man, there's so many of these movies I'd rather be watching. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah, he was he was the baby and uh, he was baby Proteus and Demon Seed. Boy, I wish I was watching Demon Seed right now. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So we're really selling this film to you, Rich. Yeah. 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 Run out and find your VHS copy of it today. I I will. I mean, I'm hoping I can find it on Betamax. It's also like it's also does this weird thing where it's it it wants you on one hand it wants you to to treat it like it's a legitimate sequel to John Huston's film, you know, because they have the same actress playing, you know, his secretary, all that stuff, and they make references to Gutman, you know, Elijah Cook is re, re, you know playing his character again, and yet the whole premise is that the Maltese Falcon turned out to be real after all. Right, and there's that whole stupid thing about how tall the bird is and how long a cubit is, and uh, and of course it plays with that funny joke in major quotation marks about it's black and long as your arm. Oh my God, if I heard that joke one more time, I was just going to die laughing. 
And Seagull, uh, George Seagull does not look like he's happy to be in that movie. No. He, he looks miserable. And that stupid running joke about his car, I, which I didn't even realize was a running joke the first two times it happened. I didn't realize that was his car. <laughs> it was like, I thought it was her car. And he saw it to the, up to the point, like, like he comes out and he sees it's beaten up a bit <laughs> and he doesn't really react. It, and so I was like, oh, that's that's not your car. That's her car. That's right. And then later on, it's established that was his car. I was like, what? Yeah, the movie sucks. Yeah. Did either of you guys get a chance to see Hammett, the Vim Vendors film? Yes. In fact, the first time I saw it was was actually in the late 80s. So I was, when I started to get turned on by film noir and started to become a Dashiell Hammett fan. It was a film I was really looking forward to seeing because of that. And I had seen it. I really liked it at the time. And I revisited it really recently because I did an article on it uh, for the now defunct pop culture website. This is infamous and found myself not as impressed with it as I was the first time I saw it. But I still think it's a really interesting film. I love Vin Vendors. um, And um, but I have to say, I haven't seen this one. This is probably going to hurt my uh, film noir street cred somehow. But um, I definitely want to hear what you guys have to say about it. And if you give it any um, uh, thumbs up, I'll go check it out. Well, this is the thing. I would say you should definitely check it out, Rich. I, I think it's an interesting failure is the way I would describe it. Uh, it's not the film Vin Vendors made. That's the thing you have to understand going into it. It got taken away from him. And, and it said that because it was produced by Zoetrope. Uh, it is, it, apparently, Francis Ford Coppola took over production. I directed like a good two thirds of it, like re reshot a whole bunch of stuff. And apparently it had some, the, the, the movie, there's this like subgenre of movies where like historical characters find themselves in an, an adventure that they could have written about, you know, like you had Kafka, you know, where, uh, you know, the, the, the Soderbergh movie where uh, Jeremy Irons plays Franz Kafka, but he's like in a Kafka-esque kind of story kind of thing. Um, and here you have like Dashiell Hammett is solving a mystery like, you know, he's Sam Spade, right? But he's still Dashiell Hammett, the writer, right, played by Frederick Forrest, and uh, and it's and it's it's really good to look at. It's shot really well. It has that like sort of like classic sort of like three strip color look to it. They associate with like early nineteen forties color films, right? Um, but apparently, there's this like a fight between vendors and and. Uh, the, the main distributor studio that was overseeing Zoetrope, where they wanted to be more of a straightforward mystery kind of piece, whereas vendors really wanted to play with Leo, you know, the fine line between fantasy reality, how much of this is in Hammett's head and all that stuff. And as far as I know, th- his version is out there somewhere. We might be able to see it, but it sounds like it would have been a really much more interesting film than what actually exists. Yeah, there's it. It, does have some tonal problems because there are moments right at the beginning of the film where uh, Hammett is laying in bed. So you're just like, okay, we're starting a dream sequence, but then we're kind of out of it. And then we're back into it. Then we're out of it. Then we're back into it. And there's never, there's never that kind of moment where you're just like, this could be a dream. It just feels like it's kind of posited as no, this is actually really going on because of the way that like uh, Peter Boyle will kind of come in and come out of the story. It feels at first that force has written him and then he comes in and he says, you are, have stolen, basically you've stolen me and put you in and put me into these uh, stories as this continental op type character 
so yeah, it's really kind of it, so you're just like, okay, well that's going along this way, but no, he actually is real, or is he? It, it, there's never really that moment where you're just like questioning reality. It, it doesn't have enough of that stuff to it. That's the biggest problem with the film. All the characters are archetypes, and they're played as archetypes, and and they're not there to to supply any comment on. Uh, Hammond as a writer, as a person, his imagination, anything like that. It's a straightforward, it's a homage to film noir. It's not really a homage to Dashiell Hammett and his imagination, which is what it should have been. And Hammett's such an interesting guy. I mean, that he was this Pinkerton and then he writes about these detectives. He could have been that that blurred line and it could have been really, you know, because he, you know, he pulled the characters from so much of the continental op stories from uh the glass key from from the Maltese falcon he pulled those i don't think he necessarily pulled nick and nora charles uh except that he and lillian hellman drank like fish but um he pulled those from his cases from people that he actually knew like he was like oh yeah joel cairo's this guy that was passing bad checks and gutman is this guy so it's just like yeah though we could have seen like the the roy kinnear character english eddie hagedorn could have kind of been spun into Gutman and it could have been like, you know, kind of what he was like in real life and the way that they tamed him down or whatever, changed some of the lines into that. But there wasn't enough of that. I was happy to see Roy Kinnear in this because I saw him and I heard his voice and I was just like, that's Veruca Salt's father. (laughs) Right. Yeah. He's kind of the Gutman analog. Right. Uh, And yeah. And, and Boyle is sort of playing the, the, you know, the, the inspiration for the continental op and all that stuff. But the thing is too, it's, it's what's odd about the film. Hammett was really young when he was a Pinkerton. He was like in his early to mid twenties. And, and when he became a successful writer, he was in his late twenties. Uh, we always think of Han, uh, Dashiell Hammett because he was prematurely gray. He was also like ill with tuberculosis, uh, t- t- tuberculosis and all that stuff. And and he always seemed older to us than he actually ever was. You know, he died when he was like 61 years old. And so he he came to be at a very, very young age. And I always thought it'd be interesting if they did, if, if, you know, when I watch Hamlet, Hamlet, I think of like the film it could have been like, I like Forrest in the part, but, but if they wanted to do something that was a little more about Hamlet, it would have been a much younger actor. Right. Um, and I don't know. It's, it's, it's like, I, it's one of those films. I like the film. I feel like I want to like it more than I do. Because I see things in it where I'm like, oh wow, I, I see. It, like, like I say, I think it's beautifully shot. I think I think the attention to period detail is is really really good. Uh, it's just that you could see that that vendors had another film there because you do feel like things are missing. Like you mentioned, or moments where you think it's going to drift into like a fantasy sequence or a dream sequence, and it just never never goes there. It gets cut off and it just becomes just a standard mystery. And where else can you see Jack Nance and David Patrick Kelly going toe-to-toe in a scene? Yeah. You know, like a, a pre-Twin Peaks reunion happening here. I was so happy. It was so happy when I saw Jack Nance basically playing that Elijah Cook Jr. type of role, but then it's kind of odd to have Elijah Cook Jr. in there. But then it was also nice that uh, a union man and there's that whole thing about Hammett and uh, 
breaking up the unions and then feeling terribly guilty about it and, and kind of moving to the other side and quitting the Pinkertons. So again, it it's but that was like kind of in there as a line of dialogue. People don't realize this. I'm, I'm going to go off all fanboyish on something. One of my f- absolute favorite novels of all time is Red Harvest. I, I am obsessed with that novel. And um, it has an interesting history all of its own of attempts to adapt it to film, uh, all the failed attempts. A lot of it's stymied by uh, Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo and, and Sergio Leone's uh, Fistful of Dollars. There's a whole history behind how that affected any future possible uh, adaptations of that novel. There was an official adaptation of a novel, 1929 Roadhouse Nights, but it's not faithful at all. It's, it's just it's not the novel at all. But the but the original novel pretty much follows a present premise of a man with no name comes to a town just like run by gangsters. And he decides to take it upon himself to clean it all up by allying himself with different sides. Right. And spreading rumors and stepping back and watching them as they destroy themselves. Right. But what's great about Red Harvest is the whole backdrop of, of what was essentially a steel mining town that wanted to unionize. And these gangsters were brought in to break the strikes. Right. And now they took over and they own the town. And so there's this very strong sort of social political, you know, uh, theme going on throughout the novel that you you don't really get in other Hammett stuff, uh, with the exception of Glass Key, because that deals with, with, with politics straight on. But, yeah, the strike breaking thing, uh, Hammett's experience with that, the references to that and Hammett, that's all in Red Harvest. And that could have been a movie unto itself, you know, having this Pinkerton detective going in and seeing how horrible this stuff is going and make that the movie. Why not? That would have been really cool. This, Yeah, I agree. It would have been interesting to did a version of Red Harvest, but with Hammett, the continental op role, it would have been really cool. Francis Ford Coppola was all about, if you look at his movies, you can see a lot of underlying themes of communism and, and social uprising and all these kind of things. So it's, you know, something that he should have been interested in backing as Zoetrope was to say, like, let's talk about unionization here in the 1970s and how we can use this as a parable for what it was like in the 1920s, but... Sorry, I'm just on my, my soapbox about that. And this should have been better, too, because I think the novel by Joe Gores is much better than the source material speaks to it. And, and Gores, I can't say that I was in love with Spade and Archer, the prequel book that Gores wrote to The Maltese Falcon. It's an okay mystery, but it kind of telegraphs things way too uh, easily. And then the other thing that I just posted on Facebook about, and I'm glad, Rich, that you uh, kind of jumped in there and helped me out, because as I'm listening to Spade and Archer, they had the Flitcraft story, and I'm listening to this story, and I'm just like, God, I've heard this whole thing before. Where have I heard this at? Only to realize, oh, or be told, actually, oh, this is in the Maltese Falcon. And I'm just like, well, why the hell would you use the exact same story in both books? It's a really weird thing to do. And luckily, he doesn't do that again, but it was just a weird way to kind of set the tone of your own book when you're kind of trying to be the prequel to Spade, uh, to the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, I haven't read the prequel, uh, but I think it is odd that they did that because that whole bit about Fitzcraft in the novel, it's not in the movie, is actually a nice little short story. Yeah, it's one of my favorite pieces about the Maltese Falcon. It's 
always surprised me that it wasn't fit worked into any of the first um, adaptations because it's such a great uh, story about a case that Sam Spade works. And um, it's really a neat little modernist parable that actually is frequently quoted as literally a standalone short story inside the Maltese Falcon. Did Howard Rodman read that to us at NoirCon a couple years ago? Yes, you remember okay. correctly. Yes. Okay, all right. That's what I thought. Because as I'm hearing this story in the, the, the Spade and Archer, because until after I listened to Spade and Archer did I listen to the Maltese Falcon, the first time I'm hearing it, I'm just like, I'm hearing Howard Rodman's voice in my head, and why is that? No, he read it out loud, and it really is. I mean, if you think back, Mike, it is just such a very powerful story with, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, he got used to beams not falling and adjusted to that reality. It's just, it's a beautiful, if anyone hasn't read it, you can actually just Google Flitcraft Parable and it'll pop up. It's a very short read, but it's really a, a great example of uh, Hammett's commentary on modern life. And I think we didn't really touch on that even with all the various subjects we did. Hammett's a very modern 20th century writer, and the Flitcraft parable really speaks to his careful observation of what modernity was going to wreak uh, upon um, American society. And one of the things are these um, challenges, kind of this unease that is underneath all of the dislocations of modernity. I think it runs through stuff like Red Harvest all the way to the Maltese Falcon. These are not books that are embracing the urbanization of the early 20th century kindly. They are um, written in a vein in which it really is a meta-commentary on some of the changes that uh, will pick up and um, express themselves um, as the, um, the kind of the nightmare black undercurrent of the 20th century. So guys, I think it's a good time to take another break and play preview for next week's show. They were three cops who had nothing in common. Freeze! Big V, what are you doing here? Hey, you know, man, keeping the streets safe, boys. One would do anything to get ahead. You truly prepared to be despised within an apartment? Yes, sir, I am. One had his own brand of justice. How's it going to look in your report? It'll look like justice. That's what the man got. And one loved the spotlight. What exactly do you do on the show, Jack? I teach Brett Chase how to walk and talk like a cop. The Night Owl Massacre. This is a heinous crime that requires swift resolution. Six victims. One of them, one of our own. Interrogations will be led by Lieutenant Edmund Exley. I need some backup. Come on. All right, Collins boy, I'll help. Now, all of them are faced with solving one case. Don't move! I want confessions, Edmund. Oh, I'll break them, sir. These people are all in the morgue. And someone has to pay for it. There's something wrong with the night owl. I just can't prove it. They thought they had it all figured out. Anything bothering you about the night owl case? fact that you guys won't let it get filed away. I didn't kill nobody! But what started as a murder... You talk only to me on this one. ...became a mystery that could cost them everything. Why was Susan Leffert at the Night Owl? I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How about some payback, big time? We need evidence. I'll get the evidence. It was an information exchange. Do you have any proof? The proof had his throat slit. What do you want, actually? I just want to solve this thing. Even if it means paying the consequences?
Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pearce, James Cromwell, Kim Basinger, Danny DeVito. L.A. Confidential. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of L.A. Confidential, where you'll hear Eric and Rich talk about that one as well. Until then, Eric, what is the latest with you, sir? Uh, lately, I've been taking a long hiatus from the cinephiles. We plan to get it back together again. In fact, I'm getting together with two of the cast members tomorrow. See if we can talk about some future ideas for future episodes and all that. But basically, I've just been busy working, doing a lot of uh, freelance video production stuff. And uh, that's how I've been living my life. All right. Making that money. I love it. And Rich, how about with you? It's a little too early to report on some of the things I'm working on. But uh, for people who have been aware of some of the projects I've been doing with Turner Classic Movies, um, we are you know, on track to have yet another one of our um, online summer courses coming. Um, it's a little too early to announce it, but it should be um, announced um, soon that, uh, you know, if you've taken my film noir course, my slapstick course, or the uh, course last year on 50 Years of Hitchcock, all signs are pointing towards uh, TCM and Ball State course number four will be uh, coming your way sometime this summer. I really hope that you finally have taken my advice and done all of the films of Elvis Presley. I really think that there's something to that oeuvre. Throw in a little top secret and do some skeet surfing, and uh, I think we're going to be off to the races. Absolutely. Just wait till you get to stay away, Joe. You'll never be the same. Well, guys, thanks again for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.